I invite you to turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. We've been focusing our attention on the life of Jesus, particularly how his Jewishness, his, the, the Old Testament speaks of him, how his culture and the geography helps us understand him better. And we started really at uh, the beginning of Advent by looking at Matthew's Christmas story, how Matthew presents Jesus in the Christmas story. And then we began this new year with that, the one story from his childhood in the temple at age 12, when he knew he had to be about his father's business, and yet the time wasn't right, and so he went back with Mary and Joseph and was obedient to them. Then by about age 30, he begins to start his ministry. And at the outset of his teaching ministry, he does two things. The first is he comes and gets baptized by John. We looked at that last week. Not because he was sinful and needed needed a baptism of repentance, but because he wanted to identify with us. And at that baptism, the Father revealed a little bit more about who he was, and he was empowered by the Spirit. And then the second event was the one that we're going to look at this morning. As he moves now, the Spirit moves him to go into the wilderness. Um, This is actually the next story, although Luke uh, puts Jesus' genealogy at this this point, so it doesn't uh, connect it directly with the baptism. But we see he's at the Jordan and is now being brought by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted. So let's look at this, this story and what it tells us about Jesus and about our relationship with him. Chapter 4, the first 13 verses. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I give you all their authority and splendor, for it's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Conclude the reading of God's word at that point. Would you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, as you led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, and as you led Luke to record this story and inspired him to record it well. We now pray that you would inspire us to understand what this story means for our lives, what Jesus' temptation and his uh, defeat of it means for us as well. We pray this in his name. Amen. So imagine you're a gospel writer in the first century And you have the task of convincing people that this rabbi, Jesus, Yeshua, is not just another person claiming to be Messiah, but he really is. 
Well, thankfully, God has, has given you a lot to work with. He's shown how his birth and childhood fulfill prophecy. And at his baptism, we hear the voice of God authenticating Jesus. And we see the Holy Spirit empowering him. All in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But now Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted. How does this fit into your presentation of Jesus as Messiah? Well, after being empowered for ministry by the Holy Spirit at his baptism, Jesus goes into the wilderness. Here's a picture of the wilderness. There's a, a little bit farther range picture of the wilderness of, in Judea, just, just to the, uh, the east of Bethlehem. It starts wilderness all the way to the Jordan Valley. It's a desolate place, and Jesus goes there. Now, this was not unusual. A prophet like Elijah or John the Baptist would go to the wilderness to seek clarity of vision for their task. Clarity of vision for their task. But most importantly, Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness to be tested by God to see if they would be obedient to God's mission. We read earlier from Deuteronomy 8, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Well, now Jesus enters the wilderness to be tested like Israel for 40 days, but some of the very same tests. But Jesus is tested by Satan who has a decided interest in tripping him up. At issue is, will he be obedient? Will he take God's way? Well, notice that Satan takes different approaches, tries to get Jesus to take shortcuts to proclaim himself Messiah. The question of the story is, how will God's redemptive purpose be accomplished? Will Jesus try to take his own way or will he go according to God's plan? Now, Israel was also brought into the desert to learn dependence on God. Dependence on God. And so, you can say that's part of what's going on behind Jesus' temptations as well. Now, this whole story raises a sticky question. Could Jesus really be tested? Could he have failed? The sinless son of God. Could he have failed? All Satan's temptations were attempts to get Jesus to change his loyalty. To move his dependence away from God and either onto Satan or onto himself. But giving in to any of those temptations would be disobedience, sin. Israel failed at all of the tests. Will Jesus... Brad Young, in his book, The Jesus, the Jewish Theologian, writes, The temptation is portrayed as an authentic test, having the potential to undermine completely the redemptive work of the Messiah. Satan, the master deceiver, earnestly wants these temptations to foil the ultimate divine plan. If we see Jesus as also being fully human, then we have to allow the fact that he could have failed like any human could. He didn't, and we praise God for that, but he could have because of his humanity. 
So what were these temptations? Well, notice that all of the temptations inherently deny the oneness of God. Or what we would say is the, uh, that he is God alone. Jesus constantly quotes from Deuteronomy 6 through 8, which we read parts of it earlier, the context of Israel's tests in the wilderness. But as we noted, Deuteronomy 6 verse 8 starts with the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Oheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is Lord alone, or the Lord our God, the Lord is one. can be translated either way, but the, the point is the same. God is the only God. But Satan comes asking Jesus to worship and recognize his power. To do so would have denied the God of Israel, would have defied the Torah, the law. So the basis of Jesus' test, as was with Israel, was to acknowledge who God really is, the only God. Failure to do so would have doomed Jesus' mission from the beginning. What are the specific challenges put to Jesus by Satan? Each one of them tempts Jesus to deny the lordship of God, the lordship of God, in order to achieve what could appear to be a very good purpose. There's some good things that Satan said Jesus could do if they didn't conflict with God in his word. For example, this is uh, another picture of the wilderness. This is some of the rocks, the stones in the wilderness. They're all over the place. Jesus has been looking at these for 40 days and 40 nights without food, and he's hungry, we're told. And so the first temptation that was recorded that Satan comes to him is to provide for yourself. Provide for yourself. The first temptation denied God's provision. Denied God's provision, that he was a providential God. God had sustained Jesus for his 40-day fast. But in his humanity, Luke tells us, Jesus was hungry. So Satan calls him to take matters into his own hands and turn stone into bread. This is what bread looks like in the Judean wilderness. This is a Bedouin's bread cooked over a fire. It kind of looks like those stones. And Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount compares bread and stone a little bit and uses those images Satan calls him to take matters into his own hands and turn stone into bread. Could Jesus have done that? Easily. And would it have achieved a good purpose? Well, if you think about it, yeah, he would have been sustained physically. But to accept Satan's challenge would be a confession that God's provision was insufficient. That God wouldn't take care of him, which recalls Israel's testing. They complained about the same thing. You just give us this manna. First they complain they didn't get anything, then it's manna, and then then they want meat in their diet and and the like. And as Moses reminded them in Deuteronomy 8.3, and you can follow along if you know the Hebrew, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's what Moses had said about what they failed to learn. 
But now Jesus quotes this very passage to Satan, rejecting this temptation. God's provision was sufficient for Israel, and it would be for Jesus as well. He would not be a do-it-yourself Messiah. He would not take matters into his own hands. He would bow to God in his plan. The second temptation denied God's sovereignty. It was Satan, in essence, saying, take a shortcut. Take a shortcut. Satan leads Jesus up to a high mountain, whether this traditional mount of temptation, which is in the wilderness, you see the, the, the uh, monastery built onto it, or whether it's what some people think is Mount Hermon, where you can actually at the northern part of Israel look down and see all kinds of the nations of the world, Syria and Lebanon and Israel and the like. Wherever he takes him, we're told he shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, saying he would, just, he would place them under Jesus' authority and give him the glory of having such power without the fuss and muss of a cross if he would just worship Satan. Kent Hughes writes, Satan presented Christ with a vision of the world in which the nations stood ready to abandon their idols and accept Christ as Lord. He could win the world without pain. No weeping over Jerusalem, no crucifixion. Jerusalem, the mighty Roman Empire, young Britain would all open their gates singing, the king comes. Satan says, one bow and you can have it all now and without the struggle. But Jesus, as every Jew knew, as every Jew would know, knew that this flew in the face of God's sovereignty of God's lordship. God alone has authority over creation. God alone has authority over the nations of the world. Satan has none. And so quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, just a few verses after that Shema passage affirming God's oneness, that God alone is God, Jesus reminds Satan of the command to worship the Lord only. He would be dependent on the Father and not look to others, certainly not to Satan to provide shortcuts for his mission. So then Satan comes along and throws one more temptation at Jesus. Maybe he had many more than these. It says they tempted him for 40 days. These are just the ones that appear apparently at the end. And this third temptation is to be a political savior. Be a political savior. It denied God's long-term plan for redemption, God's long-term plan for redemption, by substituting a short-term solution. Satan takes Jesus to the temple, likely the highly elevated southeast corner, known as one of the wings of the temple. It was quite high, about 200 feet to the ground from there. And there, Satan plays Jesus' own game. Jesus, you can quote Scripture to me, I'll quote Scripture to you. I know how to twist Scripture. And then he takes Psalm 91, which we read at the opening of the service, and re which speaks of God's divine protection under God's wings, which the Jews often uh, uh, applied to the temple, the wings of the temple, and that he could jump off and the angels would catch him. He wouldn't, he wouldn't hit his heel on a stone. But more importantly... 
the temple was closely related to the coming of Messiah in Jewish literature. One rabbi writes, Our teachers taught that at the time when King Messiah will appear, he will come and stand upon the roof of the temple, he will proclaim to Israel and say to the humble, The time of your redemption has arrived. In other words, Satan is asking Jesus at the beginning of his ministry to reveal himself as Messiah, appearing in supernatural power on the temple as the people expected, as they were looking to, forward to. But to do so would have played into the current idea of Messiah as a political savior. And to do so would also be to defy God's chosen way. So again, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16 this time, which says, don't put God to the test. Don't put God to the test. A lesson Israel learned the hard way, but Jesus would live out. So at the outset of his mission, Jesus shows himself strong where Israel was weak. He will be utterly dependent on God. And the direction of his mission will follow not his own way, but God's plans. The plans of the one true God. Not the plans of Satan. Not the plans of any person. Not Jesus' own plans. He would not be a do-it-yourself Messiah. He would not take shortcuts. He would not be a political savior. He would drink the cup to the bitter dregs at the bottom and go to the cross, as we'll celebrate in a few moments in the Lord's Supper. He would be dependent on God, subservient to his law. These remain great temptations for us, however, just as they were for Israel. It is a temptation for us to be do-it-yourself Christians. Not trusting God's provisions, not trusting God's promises. Have you ever had that where you've just gone on in life and all of a sudden you realize, boy, the last few weeks I haven't really asked God for any strength. I've just been doing it on my own. And sometimes in the back of our minds it's sort of like, okay, God, I've got things handled now. We're good. I'll call you if I need you. That's being a do-it-yourself Christian. Not trusting in God's provision, God's promises. We can also be shortcut Christians. Taking shortcuts in our actions. Or in our faith. Maybe shortcuts that make us look like we're Christians, but, but we're just brushing the surface. Making it look good for others. Or there's the temptation, especially in our day and age, to become politically correct Christians. Following the world's expectations. How often doesn't our world have an idea of what a Christian should look like and what a Christian should think and how a Christian should interpret certain biblical passages? And it's, it's so easy to go that direction and say, okay, well, yeah, maybe God didn't really mean that. Maybe there are other ways to, to Jesus. Maybe these other religions have something to say to, to themselves. Or, or, or maybe I have to put up with these kind of lifestyles because that would be the Christian thing to do. Jesus denied 
the opportunity to be a political savior, to go along with what the world thought. And we who follow him have to follow in his paths and hold a line on Scripture. So we can learn from Jesus to be dependent on God. We can learn from Jesus to answer all temptations that come our way with God's word and God's will for our lives. But we can also know that we have in Jesus a high priest who is tempted in every way as we are and yet remained perfect and who gives us the power to stand up under the temptations of life that come our way. Thanks be to God for Jesus who would not take a shortcut but who went to the cross which we'll celebrate now as we come to the table. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to not take a shortcut in life, a shortcut in being a Messiah, but to go the full way with us, all the way to the cross, so that we might know what it means to accept your righteousness and for you to pay for our sins. We pray now that as we come to commune with you and that we would be reminded once again tangibly through the gifts of the bread and cup what you did for us and that we might be resolved once again to live for you outside these walls. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond with the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Number 897 in our Lift Up Your Hearts. We'll sing the three stanzas. It's a song that talks about trials and temptations and leaning on on he, he who has gone through those himself. Would you stand as we sing? What a friend we have in Jesus. <laughs>